We're going to continue reading 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 17, uh, 20 to 53. That's 1 Samuel, chapter 17, starting at verse 20. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes his disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the man answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armour on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on the sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of the shepherd's bag and, with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. 
He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you came at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Hi, everybody. I'll just pray and then we'll get into it. Father, thank you for this story and we pray that uh, what you want to teach us tonight, you will. And we pray that you would bless this talk in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. So over the last few years, I've been lucky enough to travel to the northwest of New South Wales uh, and be with our brothers and sisters in Bawarana. Some of you have been lucky enough to be invited to Isaac and Eileen's home uh, in Bree after church or River Convention. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there's a few of you here, actually. I've sat at the back um, as the barbecue was fired up and um, meat and salad was produced and we all sat around, uh, had a good old yarn and we, we ate and we had a good time. Ike would sit at the back, at the front of the table, and he'd talk, talk to us, telling us stories, encouraging us all, and while we, while we were enjoying his food and company. He would try and convince Katie Crawshaw, Ethan's wife and my daughter, to uh, join the Bawarina Christian School as a teacher. Um, Ike can be pretty persuasive when he wants to, and I know that that offer has been at least considered seriously, maybe not taken up. And he invited a number of us to join him while we were there last time I was up on a trip um, to, a, to a river convention event for the people of Arakoon who are in the Gulf of Carpentaria in the north part of Queensland, including me, Ethan and uh, Stu and I think some others as well. That's because Ike has a heart for mission and for people and he sees the need for reconciliation both to each other and to God. Ike told me and many others the same thing, and some of you, as I said, would have heard him say this. 
he tell, he, 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 this is what he said. He said, the, the only true way to reconciliation in this country comes to the cross. And Ike is exactly right. We sometimes just don't appreciate what a miracle that is. The living God, creator of all things, loved us enough to seek to redeem us and reconcile us to himself. This theme flows like a river throughout this story today. Today we're going to have a look at a historical event that seems so distant to us here in Kiriwi today. Something that happened about 3,000 years ago. What we're going to find out is that story is not just the story about a fight between a shepherd boy and a giant. It's much more than that. Ultimately, this story is about God's plan for our redemption here and now. It's a story that eventually leads to the cross on Calvary and ultimately to salvation for us here in Kirawee. So it's also a story of faith and how God chooses to work through people to bring about his plan to fruition. Why God works through people, being one of them myself, is a bit of a mystery. But God can do what he likes. He's God after all. And by working through people, I think what he does is God reveals his heart. He shows us he's not distant, he's not unreachable. Like many other of the Greek and the Roman gods are, he's, he's in, instead personal, he's slow to anger, and he's abounding in love. He cares about you personally. He sees you as an individual of, event, of immense value to him who he is willing to risk everything for, to redeem you and to reconcile you to himself. We need to do a little recap before we go too far in. So earlier in Samuel, we see Hannah, who's heartbroken because she's childless. But worse still, she was taunted for her being childless by a rival. Now, any human today can feel the hurt and sadness that something like that would cause. But Hannah is an example for us. Her strength, uh, her faith was strong and she cried out to God in her anguish. Hannah's faithfulness was rewarded in the miraculous birth of, of Samuel, a prophet and priest. Samuel becomes Israel's last judge. At the insistence of the people and God's desires, he's asked to make a king to be given to the Israelites. The king's name... The first king of Israel's name is Saul, and he becomes the Lord's anointed. After Samuel, the last judge and priest and prophet, pours oil on him. Something that we will become rather important and extremely important in future chapters when we get to them. But God has high standards for the king of Israel, and Saul fails to live up to these. Um, and you can read about that in chapter 15. It's because of Saul's disobedience in chapter 15 that God takes his spirit from Saul and transfers his spirit to David. Samuel anoints David with oil and the spirit of God now from that point forward rests on David and David is changed forever. David is the king God has been planning for since time began and here we see that God will have his king. We now take a look at the events leading up to arguably the greatest cage fight, man-on-man -man battles of all history. 
I don't know if you think about it, but when I was a little kid, I used to always think about David and Goliath. It was my favourite story. I don't know if little boys are still like that, but we would sometimes pretend to be David and Goliath because we just thought it was really cool. It was really interesting. And little boys do like to wrestle, so I don't know. I think they still do. So I've never been in a battle or prepared for a battle. Um, there may be people who, who have here. The only thing I've experienced that, I'm, that might be similar, and I'm not saying that it is, is fighting a bushfire. Um, I don't know if you, anybody here has been a volunteer in a bushfire brigade, but when you get there, it starts out with a bit of a rush um, as you're heading towards the fire, all the noise and the, the sound of the sirens and the smokes in the air. And then there's a growing realisation that you're heading into danger uh, and you would put on a brave face as you're sitting in the back of the truck, you'd adjust your, your helmet, make sure it was tight, you'd do up your buttons. But that brave face underneath that, there's a few knots in your stomach just twirling away because you didn't know if you're going to succeed and you're worried about if you fail what it meant for you and your crew and the people who would have to face the fire if you didn't control it. So I, I can't understand what it's like to be ready for a battle, but I'm sure it's at least something like that, but probably a lot more. So when I look at the Israelites lined up against the Philistines, you get an understanding and empathy for what they were facing, really. Goliath is huge. Depending on the, the commentary, I hear nine feet tall. Others say ten feet tall. And for our modern parlance, 2.75 metres or 3 metres, respectively. However you want to look at that, he's, he's pretty big. Um, this is huge in anyone's books. And he was not only large in stature, but his weapons were enormous. And so was his ego. So in 1 Samuel 5 to 7, this is what we read. He had a bronze helmet on his head, wore a coat, of scale armour of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. On his feet he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. It's his spear's shaft was like a weaver's rod. That one I don't really understand, but I think jolly big. And its iron point weighed 600 shekels and his shield bearer went ahead of him. To give you a bit of perspective, because I had to dig into it, because, I mean... Sometimes the Bible, there's numbers and there's all sorts of things and most people go, oh, that's really interesting. We'll just, I don't know what it means, I'll move on. But I like to dig into things to find out what it means. So I did a little bit of research and to give you a bit of perspective, I went to look at two items in particular to give you a bit of an understanding from our perspective. So Goliath's armour. So any of you have seen some of the um, movies of medieval history, you'll see um, people wearing ring mail or scale armour. It looks like fish and that's to protect them in battle. That's what he was wearing. The, it weighed 5,000 shekels, which equals 57 kilograms. Think about that. There's probably people here who weigh 57 kilograms, um, or at least probably you know people who weigh 57 kilograms. Um, we, whilst we don't have a record of David's weight or his actual height, it's not beyond the reason that David weighed less than Goliath's armour. Just a conjecture. I'm not saying it's in the Bible, but have a think about it. Then Goliath's spearhead, the spear point, weighed 600 shekels. That's seven kilograms. So a Roman, for comparison, a Roman spearhead weighed 
324 grams. So Goliath's spearhead is approximately 19 times that of a Roman spearhead. And many, many times the weight of a stone that David had put in his sling. Gives you a bit of a perspective, a different idea about what's going on. This detail is to give you the feeling of how huge he really was. Goliath also taunted and jeered at the Israelites, a person that big and powerful, proud, boastful, a giant in the real sense. He would have terrified people today. If you saw a 10-foot person walk in here, I think you'd be a little bit nervous yourself, let alone the ancient Israelites who weren't all that tall. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to Europe, but sometimes I've had the pleasure of going, going to some of the palaces that uh, uh, in Europe that are open to the public, and you see the beds. The beds are tiny. Like, if I was laying down, it, my, it, the bed would stop at my knees. And so if you think about ancient Israel and you think about Goliath, there's a comparison between the two. So now we come to David, simple shepherd who is, who is only one brave, who's the only one brave enough in the whole of Israel, to want to take on Goliath. Not only does he want to take on the giant, he steps into battle without armour or a sword. He carries only a simple sling and a staff. And most importantly, his deep faith in the God of Israel. The whole event raises a lot of questions. But the first one, to me anyway, as I read the passage, is uh, why didn't the king of Israel, Saul, fight Goliath? Why did Saul allow the youngest son of Jesse to fight him? Well, the Bible doesn't actually tell us precisely. But it does come at a time when the Spirit of God has left Saul. It's also clear Saul wants Goliath defeated. We know this because in the passage, if you remember, Saul offered rewards to anyone who would defeat Goliath. This reward included his daughter's hand in marriage... And I know having two daughters how precious that is. Freedom from taxes, forever, and great wealth. Well, these sound like pretty good benefits. However, they don't seem to have motivated anyone to take on Goliath. So I think it's clear that whilst the rewards were known to David, getting them or securing them wasn't the motivation for him to battle Goliath. So we're just going to have another quick look back at Samuel 17 from verse 32. So David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of the Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go up against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep while a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock. I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. So here we see God's spirit and David's faithfulness combined into the perfect example of true courage. Remember, God works through his people to achieve his purposes. In doing so, it is the person's faithfulness that is blessed by God. We truly become partners in God's plan 
if we trust faithfully in his purposes for us. This is something we all need to remember when life throws at us difficulties. How faithful will we, would you have been in David's shoes? David's shoes. What we see here is that despite Goliath's appearance of great strength and David's youth, vulnerability and lack of experience, it was never going to be a fair fight. It was, just wasn't. Because if the Spirit of God rests on you and you are working out God's plan, there is nothing on earth that can stop you. Let's see what happens when David and Goliath meet So we're just going to have another quick look at 17 from verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog? That you come at me with sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his God. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with spear, sword, and spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attacking, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the head. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. And this was where it's no longer PG. And after he had killed him, He cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw the hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and they pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. The dead were strewn along the Shireen road to Gath and Ekron. So God didn't bring the Hebrews out of Egypt just for their benefit. He brought the Hebrews out of Egypt for everyone's benefit and ours as well. This ancient and sometimes strange people was not special for any other reason except that God chose them. He he could have chosen a powerful and mighty nation to represent them. The Egyptians, for example, but he didn't. Instead, he chose an odd group of people, a nation of slaves the ultimate example of powerless and weaknessness to be lifted up as that example. So why did he do that? It seems so strange. He did it to show us something incredible and unexpected. On paper, David is young, inexperienced and certainly weaker than Goliath, but he still triumphs. But why? Why does he triumph? 
because he humbled himself and allowed the Spirit of God to work through him. It is God who decides the outcome and he uses the weakness of us to display his power and to humble the proud even today. In the book of Daniel, chapter 4, we see the great King Nebuchadnezzar, king of the known world at the time, boastful, proud, full of machismo, gets reduced to madness and ends up eating grass like a cow. Worth reading that story. After God humbled this powerful man and he restored, restored Nebuchadnezzar, this is what he says in Daniel chapter 4, 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar and we saw in our passage through, through David both Goliath and the Philistine were humbled before the awesome power of our God. Pride is an egregious sin. It's a sin that started all the problems we have. Remember, like Nebuchadnezzar and Goliath, time is running out for the proud and boastful because they will bend the knee before the living God one way or another, either as a repentant and saved believer or as a God's enemy. And I know which one I would want to be. So this story also speaks to something else, something that ultimately is just as relevant today as it was in David's day. Satan, since the garden, has tried to extinguish the line of the Messiah. It's a recurring theme throughout biblical history. Whether it's King Herod killing babies in Bethlehem, or the Philistines trying to wipe out Israel, or Haman in the book of Esther, or the Babylonian and the Assyrian invasions, it's a constant theme. In some cases, cases, came very close to achieving his objectives. In all cases, God intervened, sometimes miraculously, into history because he's going to ensure that his plan to triumphant. Here we see God working out his plan for our salvation through David because David isn't just an ancient king of no relevance to us today. He is the man after God's own heart. Even Paul mentions this in the book of Acts. He says, after removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning, concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. For this man's descendants, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus, as he promised. So David doesn't always live up to the promise of his youth, though. He eventually stumbles and does some pretty awful things. He commits adultery and then arranges for the murder of the faithful soldier and soldier and husband Uriah to cover up his crimes but David is is a man of God's own heart own heart so why is that it's because ultimately he is repentant for his sins recognizing his place before God a rare gift that we can learn from if you remember the prophet Nathan the prophet Nathan comforting confronting David should I say in Samuel 2 Samuel 12 where he tells the story of David's um, adultery with Bathsheba, who became pregnant with David's child, and the, su the subsequent murder 
organised murder of Uriah. Here Nathan calls David out to his face. He calls it, he tells him exactly what he did. Now any other king I don't know these days um, would have dealt quite severely with someone like Nathan because you can't imagine someone like Nebuchadnezzar acting mercifully when someone calls them out for their behaviour or challenges them directly. But David's different. This is what it says in 2 Samuel 12, 13 to 14. This is what the Lord says. This is Nathan speaking, the prophet. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to someone else who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So Nathan's prophecy is for another time and another sermon because we don't have time tonight, but today to look at it. But this event will, will happen just as Nathan describes it. Here we see two qualities of David that we can emulate. His faithfulness, because he actually, in his point of despair, is faithful. His humbleness, in that he recognises where he is before God and his repentant heart qualities we should look to in our own own lives and this should encourage you i know it sounds strange but it should because even the best human example in the bible is still flawed just like me and just like you but despite this despite it all david as paul mentioned in acts 13 is the ancestor of jesus If Goliath had won, God's plan for your redemption would have been snuffed out. But God would not, Jesus would not have been born and would have all been lost. Even though Satan tried many times to break God's plan for your redemption, ultimately God's plan prevails. Because the arc of history is long, but you know what? It bends towards the cross. Everything before the cross looked forward to it. Everything after it looks back to it. The cross is the centre of all history and the centre of, uh, of our passage. No one can truly be reconciled with God without it. Today we can look back at this ancient battle knowing that God's plan of reconciliation for us has been played out through history until it reached a sinless man cruelly nailed to a Roman cross surrounded by criminals and an angry mob. But that wasn't the end of the story. The climax comes three days later when he rose again restoring us into right relationship with the Father. So God has shown us through this passage just how right, like, how right that Ike was. Ike passionately and faithfully continues to preach our desperate need for the cross to anyone who will listen. Whether it's in Colorenebri, Bawarana, Arakoon, and yes, even in Kirawee. I'm going to finish today with a verse from a song that I've heard him sing many times and I've heard a lot at River Convention. Just one of the verses because I think some of you were there would be a little bit familiar, familiar to you. So, On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and the best for the world of lost sinners was slain. And it's because of that old rugged cross here in Kirawee, that Jesus still changes everything.
Thank you.